hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the fight over trade. So, Richard, um, international trade has been a big topic these last few months with President Obama and most of the Republicans in Congress pushing for the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is a, a free trade agreement between a dozen countries in the Americas and the Asia-Pacific region, down to Australia New Zealand as well. A fair amount of resistance though, Richard, to this coming from congressional Democrats and a substantial amount of that stemming from opposition from organized labor. So the critique from labor here all the time, we've heard it with NAFTA for 20 years now. Trade deals stick it to working people. The multinational corporations may be better off, but American jobs get shipped overseas and they never come back. How would you respond to people who take that point of view? Well, first of all, I, I say that on the empirics, they're probably wrong. Uh, if you're trying to figure out what goes on with respect to jobs in the United States, particularly manufacturing jobs, the intrastate differences make an enormous difference. So, I mean, if you're sitting in Illinois where we bleed jobs on a regular basis in the manufacturing sector, um, you could easily attribute that to MAFTA, but many of these things are going down to Tennessee and to other places. The other point to note is that the American jobs may have higher wages, but at least if you free up the labor markets, they could generate higher productivity given the higher capital backing with respect to them, and so there's no reason whatsoever for them to leave. Uh, the other point, of course, is that in looking at trade, it's not just that jobs leave the United States. Um, it's also that Americans essentially um, make demands um, on other countries and they get imports and some of the imports then get built into exports which are sold overseas. So if you can have cheap imports and then you have a recycling or an incorporation, uh, that increases the sales overseas. Um, we've had NAFTA around for a very long time now, and I don't think you could ever document the case to say that that is indeed the re result. The other point is uh, you're going to always find that there are going to be shifts across sectors even in a completely closed economy. So the question you want to do is to ask about the sort of total levels of jobs and job creation. And in looking at that, the numbers I think are reasonably clear. There was steady growth all through the 90s um, and through the first part of the 21st century because I think labor policies were reasonably tolerant. In the last six or seven years, as you start piling various kinds of things on top of labor markets, uh, these things are going to slow down job creation, which has happened nationwide. But the explanation for that isn't foreign competition. It's basically domestic disablement of everything that's going on here. You start putting one tax on after another, the people who are going to be hurt the most are those people who in effect um, uh, have the lowest wage structure. That would be the manufacturing jobs. And I think this point is also true given the fact that service people have to be local, at least in many industries in order to work. Um, they're less likely to move uh, hotel workers, restaurant workers and the like. But manufacturing jobs can go overseas. So the real point here is if they do go overseas, and some of them surely do, the way to bring them back is not to prevent trade, but essentially to deregulate in those parts of the market on labor, which make it unattractive for people to engage in domestic employment. And if you put the whole picture today, a free trade agreement generally increases the size of the pie. It's very difficult in the face of large pie expansion to think that there's a particular sector who's going to be hurt in virtue of that expansion, even if they're hurt for other reasons. 
Now, we should note, Richard, that the current fights going on in Congress don't even deal directly with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's still to come. These have to do with what's called trade promotion authority, which is where Congress empowers the president to negotiate on behalf of the country. And then at the end of it, he presents a completed trade deal and they have to vote on it up or down. Can't change it. Can't amend it. That's correct. Now, and you also have a limited amount of time for debate. Now, conservatives in particular have over the last couple of years been very uneasy about what they've argued is President Obama overstepping the proper legal limits of his office. And that's the rationale that some of them have used here to argue against trade promotion authority. Why would we empower him that way? Are their concerns justified in this case? No, I think they're sort of overblown. I mean the first question you'd want to ask is whether or not President Obama in this particular case is proposing or following a procedure which has not been followed in any earlier trade deals. And I think that the earlier format has worked fairly well and that's exactly what's going on in this particular case. So what happens is these trade deals are very complicated to negotiate because you not only have to establish – no satisfaction with your domestic constituents, you have to make sure that the other participants in your particular deal are willing to stay on. And so what you do is you tend to have a strict sequential arrangement. At the first stage, essentially, you're only dealing with your trading partners and you're trying to hash things out. Uh, But it is well understood at that particular stage that if you try and really stick it to one or another nation, when it goes back home, even with its provisional approval, uh, the larger parliamentary structures or congressional structures could vote the things down. So you can't, in effect, in this business, knowing that there's a second tier, take a really aggressive stand, uh, you won't get the thing through. Uh, The second point has to do with the secrecy. There are many kinds of corporate arrangements that are extremely important to shareholders. For example, major purchase contracts, merger contracts or something or another. And what happens is you cannot negotiate these things in public. Uh, The first thing to note is Americans, when they think about negotiating in public, they say, well, we should be able to know this. But it's not just we. Once this information becomes public, it goes global. So everybody else knows what's going on. And at this particular point, what happens is once the knowledge is there, in particular interest groups are going to come forward with very sharp demands about what it is that their reservation price is, what they have to have included in this bill, and so forth. At that time, there's no room to maneuver, which you can get when there's confidentiality. So public information at the first stage of this arrangement essentially means that it will never get concluded. And every other nation will have exactly the same information, so they will go chaotic. In fact, one of the reasons why you can't go public for the United States is if your other trading partners are determined to do it in the, in the two-stage cycle and have the first stage secret, uh, if you deviate from that norm, you're out of the deal to begin with. So I think the secrecy stuff is completely overblown. The second point is you never want to underestimate the power of that final vote. It's up or down. You can't modify it, which means that the first guys know that they have only one chance to get this thing through because if they have to go through the cycle again, it's going to be extremely difficult. And that will change the nature of the terms. If you would allow the second stage to propose amendments, essentially you would be back to the power of Babel. It would not only be the United States that could impose these amendments, it would be everybody else who can impose or require these amendments in one form or another. And you cannot control the game. Let me just sort of give a simple example. 
example. If you're trying to play a sport like basketball, generally speaking, you use a round ball because that makes it possible to have all the strategic permutations work. If you start having a dodecahedron, you can't dribble the thing, you can't pass the thing, and you can't shoot the thing. International trade is like that. In order for these things to go well, you have to have very austere and simple structures at the front end so that the ball is round and everybody knows how it's played at stage one and played at stage two. And the moment you try to complexify the game in the name of democratic participation or open deliberations or something of the sort, what happens is the game turns out to be over. There's so many ways that the thing can now be sabotaged that nobody will undertake it. So I I think in effect that there is, particularly on the internet, always a kind of an impatience about this stuff and a kind of a restless behavior. And one of the things that troubles me is that there is often too easy a willingness to jump to um, presumptions of illegitimacy on the part of government officials. We've seen this with respect to national security, even though the studies have indicated that at least inside the NSA, not the tax division, uh, things have gone pretty well. And I think the trade division is run more or less professionally, has been to date. And so I think the correct thing to do is to follow the procedure. I noticed uh, just today, Ted Cruz has backed off of the trade bills, flipped over, that makes him an opportunist. Goodbye, Ted. You don't get my support having done that. When pro-trade Democrats try to distinguish themselves from pro-trade Republicans, the two caveats they always seem to turn to are insisting on certain labor standards and certain mm-hmm. environmental standards in international trade deals. Is that a sensible exertion of American economic power to use the allure of trade to try to get some of these partner countries to tighten things up a little on the regulatory side? No, I'm very much opposed to that, but I accept it as part of the general landscape because I do think in effect that labor and environmental groups are strong enough that if you went into a trade deal which had none of those so-called protections in it, it would be vetoed back at the United States. So if you ask me how important they are, I don't think they're the most important thing. I think the gains from trade in large numbers of areas with a very powerful group far outweighs the problems in those areas. Now, in principle, do I think it's a good idea? The answer to that question is no. And let me see if I can explain why and how. I mean, first of all, when you're talking about labor standards, you have to ask which ones they are. If you're talking about, for example, prohibitions on slave labor, uh, those should be done as a matter of general international law. And there's no reason for a trade agreement in order to impose them. Nobody should buy and sell goods that are made by, by slaves. But if you're talking about minimum wage laws and various other kinds of safety precautions, what's happening here is America and labor doesn't care so much about those fellows as it does about its own workers. If you raise the cost of your rivals, you reduce the likelihood that they will start to sell goods that are imported into the United States. So everybody sort of announces this as a protection device, but they forget who is being protected. When it comes to environment, I think there's another important distinction. I think every nation, whether or not there's a trade agreement, can certainly say that no other nation could admit its pollutions in a way that damages the home country. It happens all the time, but I think if you could develop a mechanism to stop it, it's all the better. And again, you don't need a trade agreement to do that. If there were no trade agreements, you still don't want somebody sending schmutz down a river or over the border through the air and so forth. But what we're talking about here is how these countries run their 
internal operations, that is, to the extent to which they pollute their own citizens. And there's a kind of a general, maybe not inexorable, but general law which says uh, that environmental protection is at a very low level when income is at a very low level. And, you know, the basic argument is if people don't have indoor toilets, um, then they're going to use the streets as sewers. You don't want to have a crazy world in which the streets are clean and the houses are poisonous. So what typically happens is as income starts to rise, people will then realize that they'd like to have a nice house on a nice street and they will tax themselves to improve the level of the streets, the sewers and so forth. So the domestic process will raise this hand in hand. When you do it from the outside, the great argument is here that you're going to basically push them too fast on the environmental front, damage their productivity under these circumstances, which makes it less able for them to ship goods in the United States. So environmentalism becomes a protectionist issue as well. Uh, the third feature of these things, which I don't like, are the trade assistance and trade adjustment programs, which say, you're displaced by foreign competition, we're going to give you some assistance. They're not huge programs, but we don't give that to workers who are displaced by domestic competition. It's very difficult when you see somebody who loses his job to figure out what the source is. It's the same discussion that you have with NAFTA. Um, somebody loses a job, is it domestic? Is it the firm? Is it the worker? Is it the foreign imports? You just really don't know. And trying to figure that stuff out is a huge administrative burden. So in general, I don't want that either. So you've got me as 0 for 3 on these things. But you know, <laughs> you've got to keep the perspective correct. The trade agreement is worth 100. Each of these things, given the way in which they're likely to be negotiated out, they're going to be at twos and threes and fours. Because remember, these other countries know full well that they will exceed in principle to labor protections and environmental protections, in part because they have them already or want them for domestic purposes. So it's not at all clear exactly what the incremental impact is going to be. They will try to keep it down so as to preserve their discretion. We will, to some extent, try to keep it up, but there, many of the American people in the trade embassies understand what's going on. Uh, so in the end, I think you'll have some of these protections, but I do not regard them as deal killers. And, you know, I'm a purist in principle, um, but you never want to make in practice the best, the enemy, the good. So the answer is try to keep these things under control and then go for it. One of the concerns that's emerging now, Jeff Sessions, the Republican senator from Alabama, has been warning of this lately, is the potential that the TPP and some other trade deals coming down the line are going to involve the development of some international institutions that could be a threat to American sovereignty. And we and we know this is still a potent argument in American politics because this is what has kept us from ratifying the Law of the Sea Treaty, which is still an argument that we're having today. Yeah. So Richard, it, it seems that if you're going to have this kind of expansive international trade, to some degree it's almost inevitable, right, that you're going to have multilateral institutions. Yes. Are there clear lines as to when things get to a point where you're giving up too much? Well, I think in effect um, there are always going to be those questions. It's also reciprocal. Other nations have their concerns with respect to their sovereignty and don't want to give all of this up. I mean we do have some kind of mechanism like this under NAFTA and it hasn't turned into a roaring terror. And I don't think that it's likely to do so here because of the reticence that everybody has. Uh, but for example, if you have to have a provision which says that uh, any local system of tariffs or taxation that discriminates against foreign imports is part 
part of all of these deals. You have to have some neutral form in which those particular claims can be adjudicated and hope that they'll come out right. Other people are not real keen on trusting American courts and Americans aren't keen on cutting the others. I will say this. Um, many of my friends teach in areas of international business transactions and arbitration. And although I'm not an expert in the area, when I talk to them, the sense that I get is that a huge amount of repetition at the private level on these kinds of arrangements has really honed the institutional stuff uh, so that these uh, arrangements work better and more efficient than do ordinary courts in the business context. And so if you're going to be dra- worrying about the kinds of business disputes rather than the human rights disputes that normally come up, my guess is that this will turn out to be tenable. And remember, the basic mechanism is still in place. If you start making it appear as though every single domestic employment contract in the United States is subject to international overstrike, it will be vetoed. And so my sense is that the mechanism will keep these things in place. Look, I mean, if you were to ask me what's the likelihood that I would vote for something that comes out of this process given my own priors, I would say it's in the order of 95, 90, 95 percent. I wouldn't say that it's 100 percent. And so long as there's some of that uncertainty, these negotiators are going to be between a rock and a hard place. That's what this procedure is designed to do. But it does only put us in the United States between the rock and the hard place, it does it with everybody else. We need access to their markets. They want access to our markets. In general, trade is a positive sum game. Every time you lower these kinds of barriers, you're never quite sure what the distributional consequences are, but most of them will turn out to be favorable. And when you hear progressives like Nancy Pelosi or Hillary Clinton talking about a better deal for the American workers, though that person is privileges against all others, what you do is you see the seeds of a national chauvinism, which in fact can make the world more miserable for lots of other Americans who aren't uh, workers, who may be small businessmen, entrepreneurs, import-export agents, and all the rest of it. And on these particular situations, you can't allow individual segment vetoes to take place. You have to look holistically and to understand that any complex agreement involving a nation with 315 million people will produce many winners, but it's delusive to say that it will produce no losers. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org. Hoover.org.